Good morning, Cornerstone. It is really, really good to be here today, isn't it? It's good to be in the presence of God. Uh, we can feel his presence here today. It's just so nice to share it with family, with all of you. I hated to break all of that up because it really is just like a family reunion and it was really fun. Uh, my name's Barry. I'm an elder here at Cornerstone. Um, Justin has dubbed me Elderberry, and I guess, I guess when I walked into it, what, what did you say? What was the word you used to describe me? Somebody said, somebody said hi, and it was like the most despondent reception to the, to the title ever of Elderberry. And so I've decided I'm just going to embrace it. So thanks, Justin. I will, I will be Elder. Pastor Justin dubbed me the name, so I will embrace it instead of, huh? I will whine. <laughs> Elderberry whine. I won't whine. Elderberry won't whine. Um, I, since we dismissed the kids and we already did announcements, this isn't on the, this isn't on the agenda for today, the order of worship, but I do have one other announcement and family need uh, for us to be aware of as a body. Our toddler room, we have a group of teachers that teach in the toddler room very, very, very faithfully, but it's a very, very, very small group. And they're struggling right now, hurting. Our family has a need. If you do not serve with our kids, um, but you love kids, and if you love humans, you should love kids because they're small humans. Um, we really could use some more help in the toddler room. Uh, so this is just a, a statement of need from our body, from our family, for our family to, to sort of help pick up that need right now. Our kids are extremely valuable to us uh, because they are, I think Whitney Houston said they're the future. Um, but we love our kids, and serving our body at Cornerstone includes serving our kids as well. They are as much a part of our family and our body, regardless of how brand new they are, uh, like Austin, or how big they are, like Tim, Gene, big guys like that. So we've got toddlers and teachers. Teachers need your love and support. And so it would be a great thing if you have any desire whatsoever to work in the toddler room. Um, our body needs it, and we would love to hook you up. You can see me. You can see Pastor Matt when he gets back. You can see Terry. You can see my wife, Olivia, after the service. Um, just let us know. We would love to, to hook you up with that toddler room to help us teach and lead and love those kids. <clears throat> if you've been here uh, for the last few months, you know that we are studying right now the book of 1 John. Uh, 1 John was written by the Apostle John. He, was, uh, he referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He was a man that knew Jesus personally, knew him very, very closely. And he wrote a, a letter, a series of letters. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and surprisingly, 3 John, all named after him. He also wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote the book of Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. John was one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament, and he was one of the disciples. And at the time that he wrote the book of 1 John, he was writing to a church that he loved. But it was a church that was scattered throughout the world, at least the known world that they knew at the time. Um, and it was a church that was struggling with a lot of issues. And one of those issues was false teaching, unorthodox teaching. And, and specifically, the, the unorthodox teaching that they were struggling with the most was, was this teaching called uh, Gnosticism. And Gnosticism basically said that Christ came to earth not in full physical form, but was basically always spirit. That God was always spirit. That, that he was never fully flesh, he was only spirit, and that while he gave salvation, that salvation was simply in a spiritual realm. 
And that each person, if they could connect with God on a special level, a special level of knowledge, gnosko, special level of knowledge that they could find salvation through this spiritual Christ. And John was teaching to his church, and he referred to the church as dear children throughout the book. And you'll remember, you'll see that as we go through. He refers to them as dear children because they're, they're people that he loved. John, at this point, is an old man. He is probably the last surviving disciple. All the rest have been martyred. He himself has, has been tortured at this time. And he sees this church that he loves, and he wants to share a letter of love with them, to connect them back to the physical Jesus, the real Jesus that actually came to the earth in human form. He was both God and both man. And he had a message of good news for the whole world. It was not just a spiritual world. It was not just a spiritual world that allowed you in the flesh to do whatever you wanted to do. But it was, it was, a, it was a world that is connected both physical and spiritual to the Jesus that is real and is alive, was resurrected, and is still alive today. So John writes this letter. Today we're in chapter 3 of 1 John. If you have your text, please go there with me. We'll just be reading verses 1 through 10, at least for now. This is again 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also makes a practice of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." Now that passage in the middle of 1 John is a, is, is a very difficult passage in some ways. I mean, John is speaking about some very real things to a very real church that is struggling with very real problems. And those are real problems of the flesh. And people within the church saying, I can live in this flesh however I want to. And it doesn't matter whatever else was said in the law and the prophets prior to that. Because Jesus came, because he set me free, I can live however I want to. And John is saying to those people, no, that's not true. What you are doing is lawlessness. And John is speaking a message of law right here. And so this is a, these ten verses are pretty strong. And they're pretty hard to take as, on their own. Because as we go on, the next part of 1 John 3 is the part that everyone knows. It's the, beloved, let us love one another. You know, the love is of God. Everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. That's the part of 1 John that we always want to go to, but we can't go there without engaging these 10 verses first. It's a message, a very strong message that, that, God, is give, or that John, excuse me, God is giving through John about law. And so we're going to have to talk about it. Um, this past winter, my family and I, I had the opportunity to take my family on the vacation of a lifetime. 
we got to spend 10 days in Hawaii, and it was, it was beautiful. The, if you've ever been there, the land of Hawaii is the most beautiful place you've, you could ever see. And if you've heard rumors about it, you think Hawaii is, everyone says it's beautiful. It is as beautiful as everyone says it is. And I hope all of you can experience that someday. Um, that trip, that once-in-a-lifetime trip that we took now, we're trying to figure out how to make that a twice-in-a-lifetime trip or a third-in-a-lifetime trip. But Hawaii is an interesting piece of land because Hawaii um, is all volcanic. There's eight islands of Hawaii, and all eight of those islands are formed from volcanoes that come from the, the, the Earth's crust, and they shoot up through the ocean. And these volcanoes shoot lava, molten rock, and, and these molten rock volcanoes formed these islands that, that exist in the Pacific Ocean. And this picture up here is a picture of what some of the terrain of Hawaii looks like. Uh, and as you drive by it, you see all this volcanic rock. And Olivia and I remember remarking as we drove by, boy, it looks like crumbled Oreos. You know, like, what, what's that dessert that people make? It's like the uh, dirt? Yeah, it's called dirt. Well, the dirt looks like dirt. It looks like crumbled Oreos. It looks like something you could just get out of your car, take a scoop, grab some of it, and it tastes like chocolate cookie. But the thing about the Hawaiian rock, this lava rock, is amazingly hard. And it's amazingly sharp, and it's very, very harsh. And the beaches, there are just a few, well, there's, there's a lot of beaches around Hawaii, but they're very small, and where there's not beach, it's just lava rock sticking out into the ocean. And if you want to go snorkeling, if you want to go swimming, you've got to climb over the sharp lava rock that cuts your feet, it does all this stuff. It looks really cool, but it's really harsh land. It's a really harsh land because of the way that it was, it was grown. Now, when we go on vacation, if you're a nom and you go on vacation with me, you know one thing, you're going to have to engage history when you go to Hawaii or anywhere else. And my family are pretty good sports. I've dragged them through battlefields all over the eastern seaboard. They've gone to Gettysburg. I've stranded them, what felt like stranding to them, in South Carolina last year. And we're in Hawaii, and I'm thinking, i got to find a battlefield because it's who I am. I, I find battlefields. But the history of Hawaii is almost unknown. The, the, the history that is known of Hawaii only goes back to about 1780, the first time Western white sailors landed ships on Hawaii. No history before that had been written at all. But I found this guidebook. I'm li- looking through this guidebook, and it, and it finds out like a m- half a mile from where we're staying is the greatest battlefield on all of Hawaii. And I thought, oh, I've got to find this thing. And so for a week, I'm dragging my family around, taking shortcuts and U-turns and detours to try to find the Hawaiian battlefield, and I can't find it anyway. The day before we leave... I decide, huh, I'm going to take a right here, because I think it's down here. And we take this right, and right there off to the left was this huge field of lava rock. And this right here, this picture that you're looking at, is this huge battlefield fought on this hard, sharp, harsh terrain of lava rock. I just thought that was cool. I found some history when I was in, when I was in Hawaii. I found this battlefield. The thing about Hawaii... To the history that we know, there's, there's a history of law with the Hawaiian people. And the, his, the history of law with the Hawaiian people was a history of people that were trying to figure out how they could live in harmony with this crazy nature that they had inhabited. A nature of erupting volcanoes and typhoons that would come out of nowhere and wipe out whole villages. And these volcanoes that would send lava streams and rivers of lava wiping out hundreds of people. So the Hawaiians fashioned their own law on this really harsh land, and they fashioned this law that was just so dark and so hard. 
And basically, under the Hawaiian law, they figured out that every little thing that we can do, if you do it wrong, it has to result in death because you violating the law means that Pele, the goddess of the volcano, is going to kill us all. And so, for instance, if, if you walked in front of the... Jake is always our illustration. If Jake is the king of Hawaii, and I am just a peasant, and I happen to walk such that my shadow passes over Jake, I am now punished by death for doing so. And this is the, this is the basis of the Hawaiian law. Men and women could not eat together. If they ate together, they were executed. They were killed because of the harshness of the law and the harshness of this land that they, that they lived on. We humans have a very, very interesting and very strange relationship with law. We, as Americans specifically, have a very strange relationship with law. And some of you have heard me say this before, but you know that Americans are, by nature, extremely rebellious people. We just do not like having people tell us what to do, right? And that manifests itself in a lot of strange ways. We have a really strange relationship with law. For example, traffic laws are everyone's favorite thing, right? I, for the last eight years, I have traveled on Interstate 81 to go to work three to five days a week for eight years, from Lebanon to either Harrisburg or Mechanicsburg. And does anyone know what the speed limit on Interstate 81 is? I heard 65. That section that I drive every day is 55 miles an hour, right? 55 miles an hour on 81. That's the law. The law is 55 miles an hour. Does anyone know how fast people drive on 81? 81. I have always thought that the 81 on I-81 was the speed limit because that's basically what people do. It, it, is, it is like the Pennsylvania Autobahn. It, it, that stretch of 81, and frankly, I'm okay with it because I'm an American, and I like the laws I like. I don't like the laws I don't like. And there's a reason for that. But Pennsylvanians especially are funny. I'm a Pennsylvanian now. I've lived here for eight years. I didn't originally grow up here, so I'm able to see as an outsider some behavior of Pennsylvanians too. There's another funny thing about you native Pennsylvanians and, and your engagement of traffic laws. And it drives me nuts. In addition to those that drive 55 and 81, there's another thing that drives me nuts. When you come up to a, to a four-way intersection and I have to turn left, right? I'm turning left. You're at that stop, way, stop sign right there. Maybe it's, it's a two-way stop. This road goes between. I'm turning left, waiting. You're there. You're going straight or you're turning right. What do you guys do? Every time. You wave me through. Don't do it! <laughs> it's a violation of the law. And on this law, I want you to obey the law. On the other one, I'd rather you didn't. But on that one, it's just like... Why are you waving me through? You, you want me to get killed. You want me to, to draw fire. You want me to draw enemy fire in case some, a big truck is coming, right? You want me to take the brunt of that. Stop waving me through. I just don't make eye contact. I'll sit there like this. I'll just wait until you get it. The law says for you to go, so go. We have a really, really strange relationship with the law. We don't like being told what to do. We like the laws we like, and we dislike the laws that we dislike. And the reason we like the laws we like are because those laws, by and large, are telling you to do something. I like the laws that tell you to do something. I don't like the laws that tell me to do something. We have a really, really odd relationship with law. That goes not only to the core of who we are as Pennsylvanians 
as Americans, as Westerners, but it just is a, is a state of the human condition of what we are. It's not unusual that we have a disconnect and dissonance with law because that's who we choose to be. We have chosen that disconnect and dissonance. But then as a church, we can see our culture around us. And we can see that our culture has a disconnect and dissonance, not only with law, not the same disconnect and dissonance we have. They have that as well. But our culture, our society, our nation, people all over the world have a disconnect and dissonance with the law of God too. And it's no wonder. It should be no wonder that that they do. But the law of God, and when I say the law of God, I specifically mean what we talk about, what we, what we traditionally refer to as the Old Testament, right? If you take any hot-button issue in our country today, anything that even touches closely on morality, anything like that, you will hear arguments, the craziest things that people say about God's word, about the law that's contained in the Bible. They'll mock it. They'll, they'll make comparisons, false comparisons, all sorts of crazy things that make us just, just nuts, right? Because we believe that this is the law of God. But at the same time, we still have a dissonance and a disconnect with law in general. And so we also have a disconnect and dissonance with the law that God gave. And specifically what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the word of God as embodied in the Bible. We have a cultural disconnect and dissonance. And for me, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. By occupation, I'm a lawyer. By occupation, I am supposed to practice law, but I still have this disconnect with law. John tells us in, in, in 1 John 3 that we are to practice righteousness. You can interpret that as practicing law, and that's not just to justify my own occupation, but to practice law, to practice lawfulness. And, and there's this heart disconnect in me, and I assume it's in you as well. Why do I not love the law? Do you love the law? And I'm not talking about human law now, because there is a difference but do you love law? And if you don't, why don't you? Why don't I love law? Why is it that I can look at Psalm 19 and I can read David's words and he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Do your, does your heart rejoice with precepts and law and direction? Yeah, I I mean, I struggle with this. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Does law to you taste sweeter than honey? You know, this is is my heart condition. I can't. So often, I find myself in that place where I, I just don't feel it. How is it that David can write these things and mean it? How is it that David, living in the midst of this, of this law, this law that seems so harsh, it seems so unforgiving, the law of the Old Testament that David dealt with felt like an iceberg. And we think of it like an iceberg. It's this cold, harsh, forbidding dangerous lump of stuff that we somehow have to deal with. And it's so threatening that if I run into it, it's going to sink me just like the Titanic. How is it that David could sing in Psalm 19 about his love for the sweetness, for the passion 
of what the law was to him. Sweeter than honey. How do we get to that place? Does it even matter? Does it even matter? First, first John, John, the apostle, appears to believe that it matters quite a bit. Because he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And John says, sin is lawlessness. So when John says that if you make a practice of sinning, you make a practice of lawlessness. Flip that on its end. If you make a practice of lawlessness, you make a practice of sinning. So John appears to think that it matters. Even in this New Testament world where Christ has come in spiritual form to redeem us, it still matters. Sin and lawlessness still matter. And righteousness and law abiding still matter. So how do we as a church reclaim what David was singing about? A love, a passion, a desire for the laws of God. I think we need to discover what the law of God was and why he gave it. It's easy for us to be distracted by the ice of the iceberg, right? By those harsh statements within Scripture that seem to make no sense to a God that we know is loving and to a God that we know is gracious. And so it's easy for us, it's easy for the world to look at those things and ask the question, how can a loving, kind, and gracious God do this to his people? You've heard that question before? Maybe you've asked that question before. It is a fair question to ask. And God is big enough, he can handle that question. But that's the question that we see when we look at the law of God as an iceberg. When we see it as that iceberg. But it's, it's, it's not right for us to look at the law and get caught up in the mechanics of the law itself. Because the law is never about the thing that it regulates. Go back to the Pennsylvania traffic laws. Traffic laws do not exist because of traffic. They don't exist, speed limits don't exist because cars go fast, right? Traffic laws don't exist because of traffic, and they don't exist to regulate traffic. Rather, all laws exist for two reasons. To establish a relationship between the lawgiver and those that are subject to the law, and to establish a relationship between those people that are subject to the law. That's what traffic laws are for. Those traffic laws, that speed limit, that, that right-of-way on a left-hand turn, those exist because there's a right relationship between you and me. And there's a right relationship between the state that fashioned those laws and those, that we are, and, and those of us that are subject to those laws. It's not about the traffic law itself. It's the same with God. God did not write laws about eating shellfish and crazy things like this because shellfish— he wrote laws and he gave man laws because he cared about two things. A relationship between him and us and a relationship between us, together, working together. Now there's some basic truth when we talk about law and the giver of law that we have to address if we're ever going to recapture and understand how we can possibly love the law. The first is this, that God, from the very beginning of time, wanted nothing more Nothing more in this world than to be with his people. To be our God 
and that we would be his people. He wanted to be in physical, material, tangible relationship and community with us. And that's the way that he created the world. That was God's firm desire. But in order to do so, he had to create us in a way that we would choose him. And so he gave us free will to choose obedience to him, to choose that relationship that God designed for us, or to choose something else. And he set that choice in front of us. And at the very beginning, through one man named Adam, we chose rebellion. And lest anyone thinks that they would choose something different in that position, just look at the rebellion in your own life. Look at the rebellion in my life. And we can see that we and Adam are the same. And we have chosen rebellion. We have chosen to separate ourselves from God. And so God, this this all-pure, all-holy, all-perfect God, could not exist in the same place as a sinful, rebellious man. Now, a lot of times you hear a statement like that, that's basic gospel stuff, right? A lot of times you hear a statement like that and you think, why did God limit himself that way? Why did God limit himself? Why couldn't God choose to still be with us? It's not about God. It's not about a limitation on God. It's about us. For if we were in the presence of this all-righteous, all-holy, all-perfect God, we would be destroyed. And that's the spiritual reality of it. And so when we chose that course of rebellion, we chose sin and we chose lawlessness, the consequence was that we would die. Basic gospel stuff. It wasn't about God limiting himself or about God limiting us. It was a spiritual fact. We could not exist in the same place as a perfect God. But God always wanted to be with us. He always wanted to be in community with us. He always wanted to be in relationship with us. And so he thought of a way. And so he gave people law. And so law, rather than being an iceberg, this foreboding thing, was really something like this. Because what God wanted to do was to give people a tangible, a material piece of who he was that man could hold on to, that man wallowing in a sea of sinfulness and loneliness and despair and lawlessness could have something that he could grab onto, some tangible piece of the living God that wanted nothing more than to be with us and in community with us. And so God gave us law. So law was a gift of a loving God. Law was a gift unlike anything man had ever seen anywhere else in the world. Up to that point when he spoke to Abraham and the patriarchs and when he physically gave the law to Moses, up to that point, Nowhere else in the world had man ever experienced anything from the gods that they had manufactured, from the gods that they had created, from the false gods, from the other gods, all the gods that were not Yahweh. None of them had experienced anything like this. Because we have a God that is unlike any other God. If we go back to this story about Hawaii, the thing about this battlefield that just shook me to the core was the reason it was fought. Hawaiians, they manufactured this law that was not rooted in who God was. It was rooted in their fear of the natural world and all this stuff. White man came in ships in 1779. And for the next 30 or 40 years, every Westerner that stepped foot on Hawaii, left and right, is breaking all of these Hawaiian laws. 
because they don't, they don't observe them. And the Hawaiians had no ability to bring their justice to the powerful white man. But every day, every day, these guys are coming off of these ships. Their shadows are crossing over the king. They're touching the king. They're eating meals and doing other things with Hawaiian women. And the volcano is not exploding. And the typhoon is not coming. And these white men are not dying. And Hawaiians are not dying. And this law is being broken. And in 1820, the king of Hawaii, King Kamehameha III, said to his people, I have observed this thing, that when these men come, they violate our laws and the gods are not angry. We are worshiping false gods. Now understand, up to 1820, no Christian missionary had ever stepped foot on Hawaii. No one had come specifically to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to Hawaiians. There had been Christians on these ships, and I assume because they are, they are Christ's flesh that they behaved as Christ's flesh on this land, but no concerted effort had ever been made to convert Hawaiians. And King Kamehameha III said to his people, I have observed this thing, that our gods are not real, that we are worshiping and serving gods that aren't right, and we have created false laws that, don't, that, that mean nothing. And so he said, I'm going to have lunch with my sister-in-law. When his uncle found out about it, his uncle was one of the chief priests of the Hawaiian law, said, you will not do that, and we will fight you to make sure that our laws stay in place. King Kamehameha III goes and has lunch with his sister-in-law, violating the law, and under the law, he should die. And his uncle comes with an army on this field, and they fight a battle in Hawaii on this field to end law. Because this is a people struggling, like clawing their way on a harsh land, trying to figure out the best way that they can make themselves right with a God that they know must be real, but a God that they cannot see and a God that they cannot touch and a God that they haven't known before. And meanwhile, God himself has chosen to reveal himself in a tangible, physical, material way to the people of Israel. And so he gave the people of Israel that tangible, physical way to reveal who God was, the vastness of who God was. The Israelites were blessed with that tangible, material handhold that they could touch this God that was just, and this God that was holy, and this God that was perfect, and they had that law. Meanwhile, in Hawaii, they're struggling with this, right? The Hebrews understand that the law is not so much an iceberg, it's more of an island. And just like the iceberg has just this mass underneath it, every island, specifically the Hawaiian islands, they have this mass of land underneath them. This mass of land that is more than just the law itself. In fact, uh, Mauna Leo on Hawaii is presumably the tallest mountain in the world. Everyone thinks of Everest, but if you go from the seafloor the bottom of the floor to the top of Mona... I can never say it. Mona... Mona... What did I say? Huh? Mauna Loa. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Mauna Loa. If you go from the sea floor to the top of Mauna Loa, it's the tallest mountain in the world, taller than even Mount Everest. And so the Hebrews knew. They had this tangible God, this island that they could cling to that was not just this collection of really weird, really harsh, really unforgiving laws, but was in fact the representation of a vast deep, and perfect God. 
And it wasn't just an island that was harsh. It was an island that was full of life. It was an island that gave them life. It was an island that gave them joy. Because they had that thing they could hold on to with God, David could sing that your laws are are sweet to me like honey. Even your judgments, your precepts, everything is good. Because I have it. I have this tangible thing of this God that I know loves me. And it's not about the harshness of the law. It's about who you are. And the harshness of the law doesn't change, and the judgments of the God don't change, but the God is always the same. He's always there. And I have something I can cling to. David, the Israelites, were not a people floating around in that Pacific Ocean of lawlessness and sin, grasping for something that they could find that would connect them to God. They had it. The law was that thing that God gave them. And he didn't have to give it to them, but he gave it to them so that they could touch him, so they could feel him, so they could be a part of him. But just as we know, like even the Hawaiians, it wasn't enough, right? It wasn't enough. And so God had a bigger plan. God wanted always, from the very beginning, to be physically, materially, tangibly in relationship with his people. And he had given law. And people continue to choose rebellion, continue to choose sin. And meanwhile, the rest of the world is still suffering in the sea of lawlessness, right? But, but God had another plan. God had a plan that was bigger even than the law. And that plan was Jesus. And so what before was just the tip of an iceberg, this law that people were clinging to, this tip of the iceberg, in the person of Jesus was completely revealed. And that sea of sinfulness and loneliness and despair and lawlessness was gone. And the full mountain, the full revelation of God was revealed. If you have your Bibles, go to the Gospel of John. John, when he wrote this letter, when he wrote 1 John 3, and he's writing about lawlessness and being children of the devil and being children of God and the difference between the two, Listen, John was just recalling conversations that he heard Jesus have himself. And these conversations, these statements that Jesus himself made, reveal this fullness of the reason that Jesus came. This broader plan that God had. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And so Jesus is declaring to these Israelites, the ones that had the law, that tangible piece of the law, that, that he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of that law. Just as God wanted to reveal himself through the law, 
Jesus is saying, I am my Father. I am that God. That piece of the law that you were clinging to is now being revealed in me. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Do you hear 1 John 3 in this? The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Listen to 1 John 3 in that. John is relating this conversation that he heard Jesus have with the Jews. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you will be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And John conveys the same message. And so what Jesus is saying is that not only am I God, but we've also heard Jesus say, I am the fulfillment of the law itself. So Jesus, who John referred to as the word, Jesus, the logos of Christ, the word of Christ, the word that gave rise to all of the law, all of God's desire to reveal himself through these words, Christ is those words. He is the logos of Christ. And he is now made real. And so God's plan to fully reveal himself was to do it through the person of Jesus and to embody in Jesus all of the law that was spoken before and to embody in Jesus the law of sin and death that had governed all of man from all time, from the very beginning, from Adam. And so Jesus, this law, why does God give law? God gives law to establish relationship with himself and his people and to establish relationship between those people. And God embodied all of that purpose of law inside the person of Jesus Christ and sent him and gave him more words to share. And more importantly, gave him a mission. And that mission was to fulfill the law. And so Christ goes to the cross fulfilling that law. He fulfills that law. The purpose of the law, to establish relationship between God and man. What is the greatest law that Jesus says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And in that way fulfills that first purpose of the law. Jesus says to do that. He establishes it between God and man. He is God, fully revealed. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father, and he says, this is the greatest command. Love the Lord your God. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
and he fulfills that second purpose of law. The second purpose of law is to establish how I will live in relationship with you and how you will live in relationship with me. And in that statement, Jesus fulfilled it. And in fact, he says in Matthew right after it, all of the law, all of the prophets hinge on this. All of that icy crag, that unforgiving part of the law that God gave hinges on those two things. Love the Lord your God and love each other. Love your brother as you love yourself. And Jesus embodied that. And he spoke it over these people that had been longing for the full revelation of God from the very start. And he was right there. And then he goes to the cross and he pays the price of death that the law demanded. And so God, who wanted desperately to be with his people, sent his son to take the place of those that would otherwise die. So he became the embodiment of the law itself, the full revelation of God in physical, material form, and he became the penalty for our sin and lawlessness. And he took it on himself. And so all of the law was fulfilled. All of it. All of it. Every single bit of it. It was not destroyed because Christ could no longer destroy the law. He could no more destroy the law than he could stop being God himself because he was the logos of God. He was the fulfillment of that word. He was all of this in flesh fully revealed. And so the reason that Christ came was for that to be the full revelation of God, to be the full fulfillment of the law. So John says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, and he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away lawlessness. And in him there is no lawlessness. No one who abides in him keeps lawlessness. And no one who keeps lawlessness has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices law, practices righteousness, is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of lawlessness is of the devil. For the devil has been lawless from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy lawlessness. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to fulfill the law which existed to eliminate lawlessness. No one born of God makes a practice of lawlessness, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep lawlessness because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice law, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Whoever does not practice righteousness, love the Lord your God, and whoever does not love his brother is not of God. And that's how John could say the very words that Jesus said, because Jesus was the fulfillment of all of it. And so John is calling us to that place. Does it matter if we love the law? Does it matter if we love the word of God? Does it matter if this means anything to us? Jesus says it does because I am this. 
Because I am the fulfillment of, of all of this, and therefore it matters. Listen, we cannot, we cannot love the lawgiver and despise the law. It is impossible. Because if we do so, we make a practice of lawlessness, which is sin, which separates us from God, which is the reason that Jesus came, to destroy that sin, to destroy that lawlessness. We cannot love the king and despise his laws. Our country began, some of you have heard this, but our country began in 1775, around that time. Prior to that time, our founding fathers believed in the concept of liberty, the concept of liberty, but they referred to it as the king's liberty. To them, the liberty that they experienced as English colonists existed only in the person of the king. Only the king could embody liberty. And whatever liberty we as colonists had, we had because the king gave it to them. It was only later, when they learned some things that hurt their feelings and offended them, that they decided to turn that against the king and said, we now desire liberty from the king. But I'm telling you, they had it right at first. Liberty only exists in the person of the king. Paul confirms this. He says, we are either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. Repeating the things that John said. You can choose to either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Either way, you will be a slave. But if you choose to be a slave to righteousness, as John calls us to be, as Jesus calls us to be, then you experience freedom. Because freedom only exists in the person of the king. And freedom only exists because Jesus Christ set us free through the fulfillment of the law. And that's the only way, that's the only way we can ever experience liberty or freedom is by practicing righteousness as Jesus defines it and by loving our neighbor as he said to do. This is the beautiful picture of the law. So how can we love the law? How do we reclaim that space where we can say the law is good to me? The law gives me life. The law is this place where I thrive. The law is sweeter to me than honey. It is the most sweetest thing to me ever because Jesus Christ is the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. When Jesus was here in flesh, he meditated on these words. He meditated on the law and prophets. He did not do away with them. He was them. He was the fulfillment of them. He memorized these. He took it inside. He loved the word that his God gave him. And he was the word that God gave to us. So do you love the law? Does it matter? How do we reclaim love of law? By reclaiming love of the one who gave us law? If you love the one that gave, gave you law, then you love law. If you love the one who embodied law, then you love law. If you love the one that fulfilled all of the law, then you love the law. So now, all we have to do is love the law as well. We are at a place right now in our culture, in our society, in our church, where this is becoming separated from everything else that everyone says. And we find ourselves in that same place as the Gnostics were. Because the Gnostics said, well, this really doesn't matter. The only thing that really matters is Jesus. But those two things can't exist at the same place. You cannot say that the only thing that matters is Jesus and this doesn't matter. Because this and Jesus are the same thing. Because Christ fulfilled the whole thing. 
I want to issue an invitation to us as a body today to declare love for the law. If you want to reclaim a love for the law, reclaim it. State it. We'll state it. I've got some cards. They're just pieces of paper. And they're all down here on the, on the front. Uh, band, if you want to come up right now. Um, they're, they're all down here on front. The prophecy mic is here. We as a body have an opportunity to just declare. There's nothing mystical or magical in this, but it's an exercise for us as people to sing the praise that David sang as well. If we say we love Christ, then we must love the law. We must love the law. And so these are all verses out of Psalm 119. And I'm going to start it off. Some of them are short. Some of them are longer. But the invitation is for us as a body to corporately engage us, to corporately declare that we rely on God's law because we claim to know Christ and we claim to know the lawgiver. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Thank you for joining me in declaring the goodness of God's law. Um, There's one piece of it that I just wanted to end the word with, and then Tim is going to bring our benediction. Um, What God is not calling us to is a slavish devotion to the law apart from him. The belief in Jesus and practicing righteousness go hand in hand. I think the interesting thing about uh, John 8 is the way that it starts in, in verse 31. So that conversation that Jesus had with the Jews when he goes on this hard conversation about them being sons of the devil and them arguing that they are sons of Abraham and him saying, you need to be sons of my father as I am. This conversation starts with him talking to Jews. And I want you to see or to hear who he was talking to. Um, Verse 30, right before this, Jesus talks about, he he gives this this message of him being the light of the world. And he says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. The very next sentence says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. And then he goes on that conversation. And he has this conversation with the Jews that had believed him. So belief in who he is and practicing righteousness go hand in hand. Because the Jews were like the, the, the predecessors of the Gnostics. Ah, we believe you. We believe the words you're saying, but you don't believe who I say I am. You cannot practice righteousness apart from loving Jesus and worshiping Jesus. And you also cannot love, believe, and worship Jesus without practicing righteousness. That's just that last piece that I want to share, and Tim's going to share the benediction. Sorry. Um, so as, as Barry was teaching, uh, I was really drawn to the imagery, um, you know, in, in the teaching, the imagery of the iceberg, and then the imagery of the mountain. And uh, from, I mean, I have pretty decent enjoyment of the outdoors, and particularly as I teach it with uh, 
it's mostly young people. Um, you know, I, I do refer to Romans 1, 18 and 19 often, and paraphrasing is that, you know, we can learn about God. He reveals himself through what he's made. And uh, when you think about an iceberg, and I don't know about you, uh, I've, never, I've never seen one in real life. I've seen pictures like the one that Barry shared, and, you know, they're magnificent, uh, immense, they're beautiful, they're stunning. Uh, there's also like an ominous kind of thing and um, a danger to them. You know, icebergs, as they're in the water or break away from a glacier, they bob, you know, and they float around. And then, and sometimes people now with, you know, the GoPros and all that stuff will capture this, but they will flip because what's under and above, as that density changes, you know, they'll actually rotate in the water. So when it comes to people having captured being on an iceberg, you don't hear so much about that. And there's a reason you don't hear so much about that. You don't want to do that. When it comes to mountains, uh, there's a lot, and there's been a lot, even before GoPros, about exploring mountains or going on a mountain. And uh, one personal story, um, and it's, just, it's a quick one, but uh, I was on a mountain. It bordered uh, Vermont and Massachusetts, and uh, it was a really cool name, Mount Greylock. In fact, there's a, there's a war memorial on the top. I just thought of you because you were teaching. And uh, when we started that trip, um, we started in the night, got down to 17 degrees, and we slept in a, like an A-frame in our sleeping bags. And so it was cold. Got up the next morning, 55 degrees on the bottom. So we're in T-shirts and sweating with our packs on. By the time we got to the top, which when you get to the top, you can actually see three states at the top. And it is blowing cold. I'm sure it's probably around zero. There's an inch-thick layer of ice on this monument. So, I mean, the amount of differing experiential stuff that you have when even just going on a mountain. The other thing is there's many paths to explore. The biggest thing that struck me was between an iceberg and a mountain is the foundation. The mountains are, they're solid. And so um, as, as Barry was teaching, I was really drawn to, you know, God drawing us, revealing of himself to explore him, to join him in the adventure of the story he has for you, story has for the church and knowing him because like the iceberg I mean and the law like we can't can't do that but as Barry was teaching he can he does he is and we can join him because he has overcome what we could never so I'd like to offer a benediction this morning uh, father we join together as your children in just saying thank you for overcoming, Lord, for becoming uh, what we can't. And even when I think of the law and I think of, you know, it being uh, even like an iceberg, I mean, there's a lot to it. There's a lot that can be revealed. There's a lot that you would draw out through the law. It's something that as we would try as much as we could never fulfill. But through Christ, you did. And he is a solid foundation. And you invite us, God, to know you, to explore you. 
So, uh, God, as um, I am with my brothers and sisters, Lord, may we today uh, join you, God, in loving you, loving you first, and loving one another as you've directed us to. And in so doing, God, know you richly, know one another richly, and explore you in your truth that is a solid foundation. In Jesus' name, amen.